Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thank you out there for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It is Thursday, March 11th, and we have, as always, a lot to talk about on the show today. We start with the fact that Governor Kemp and the State Department of Public Health are pushing hard to get more shots in the arms, more COVID-19 vaccines into the arms of Georgians. As most of you know, On this past Monday, uh, uh, teachers and other employees of uh, state schools were eligible to be vaccinated. So that's expanded the pool. Um, And yesterday, the governor made what has the potential to be an enormously significant announcement. He uh, has lowered the threshold for people to be vaccinated to age 55, but also included people with a long list of uh, health conditions that will make them eligible regardless of age. Some of the people who have looked at the list of conditions say what it's really going to do is make it possible for most adults to find a way to get vaccinated. And regardless of that, the governor also announced yesterday that, uh, that his goal, the Department of Public Health's goal, is to give all uh, eligible, all Georgians, all adult Georgians, Uh, the ability to be vaccinated by sometime in early April. Meanwhile, the federal government is about to open a mass vaccination uh, site at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. They say they will vaccinate 42,000 people a week at that site. They'll run the site for eight weeks in cooperation with the state. Um, FEMA will come in and be part of the effort to do that. And when it was first announced, and I haven't seen more details on this, the Fed said what they were hoping to do was to expand accessibility to underserved communities, to minorities, people who don't have easier access to get the uh, shot. Finally, um, we've been talking about all of the one-year anniversaries that this week is bringing us in terms of various aspects of a sh- the shutdown of the, the state, of the country, in response to our understanding we did have a pandemic on our hands. Today is an especially significant day. It was on March 11, 2020, that Utah Jazz Center Rudy Gobert tested positive for the coronavirus, leading the NBA to abruptly shut down the game that very evening that uh, Utah was playing against Oklahoma City. Later that night, the NBA said it was suspending its entire season. And in many ways, that was the moment that it really struck home for all of us that we were in a pandemic that was going to radically alter our lives and has done so for the past year. We'll talk about that. Lots more on the show today with Thursday's uh, partner of mine on this show, Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How are you doing, Kevin? Good to be with you, Bill. And uh, I'm excited because uh, the governor's plan to allow uh, to broaden the list of people who are eligible makes me eligible for the vaccine. So I'm really, are you over 55? I thought you were still a younger guy than that, Kevin. 
I may seem uh, youthful uh, while on the show, but I've got a lot of miles uh, uh, on me there, Bill. So. As would any editor of the Atlantic Journal <laughs> Constitution. Thanks for being here today, Kevin. Uh, professor Amy Steigerwald, political science professor at Georgia State University. And it's always appropriate during the legislative session to say also the person who is in charge of the intern program at the state capitol, the many young people who get to work for legislators and in other offices during the session. How are you doing, Amy? We're doing well. Excited to see the sun and the warm weather and hopefully, fingers crossed, it'll stay for a little bit. Yeah, let's hope so. And we're joined once again by our good friend, Buddy Darden, former congressman from the 7th District in Georgia back in the day when the 7th District, Buddy, we've talked about this before, stretched virtually from the city of Atlanta, from the river all the way up to the Tennessee line. And how far east did the district go in those days? Uh, Cobb, all of Cobb County. Yeah, yeah. But Bill, I'm to the so show, excited buddy. today because of the passage of that momentous legislation yesterday. I almost wish I was back in the House where I could have voted for it. <laughs> well, we're going to talk a lot about that bill um, uh, on the show today. But I do want to start with the coronavirus story because it is extraordinarily good news, Kevin, that, that <clears throat> excuse me, there is going to be an expansion of vaccine eligibility. Uh, but there are concerns on a couple of fronts here that the state's going to have to, to f- deal with. One of them is, will the supply be there? Now, we know the Biden administration has just announced they're, they've just bought 100 million new doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. There's other vaccine in the pipeline. But, but one of the reasons people are a little concerned is that um, Georgia has been the lowest state in the country in terms of getting shots in arms. And I was looking at figures before the show went on the air today, and, and I just want to read you a, a couple, Kevin. According to the Department of Public Health, as reported by your folks at the AJC, Kevin, Georgia has now received 3,336,655 doses of vaccine. They've administered 2,478,115 shots, 74% fulfillment rate. Now, I'm not sure quite what that gap is all about, but it's one of the reasons people are concerned about the states need to ramp up if they're going to expand eligibility. Well, it's been a consistent uh, challenge for Georgia, and we have been ranking near the bottom of the ability to get vaccines in arms all, all along. Now, we, we do see the government, governor and, and the state government pushing hard to create more mass vaccine uh, centers and that sort of thing, because I do think that's an alarming thing. I mean, the goal is to what's the point of getting the vaccine if you can't get it into people's arms? Um. Amy, one of the other concerns has been that uh, the technology needed to get an appointment is out of the reach of some of the very people who need the vaccine most, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, actually, I witnessed that the other day. I was at uh, CVS Pharmacy and somebody walked up to someone who was checking people in, doing shots, and said, how, how do I sign up? And they said, oh, it's really easy. You go online. And the response of the person who asked was, oh, I, I'll have to find somebody that can help me do that, right? I don't have a computer at home. It was somebody who was a bit older. 
she wasn't quite sure how to work the technology. And so on the one hand, I think for those who are technologically savvy, it's really positive, but I think we see this gap in part, right, of a lot of those who are particularly in that sort of over 65 range who have not signed up because they're having so many issues figuring out how simply even to do it, what's necessary. I think it's also been confusing because um, if you go to sign up, and I, I have friends that have, have witnessed this, where even though the eligibility requirements have changed, they haven't necessarily, especially with the private providers like the pharmacies, they're, what they list as who is eligible versus what the state is saying haven't all uh, sort of matched up. And there's sort of this also disconnect between when can you sign up, right? If, in fact, you become eligible on, let's say, the March 8th, could you sign up before the 8th? Do you have to wait until the 8th and then you're allowed to make an appointment? What do you do if the eligibility requirements say that you haven't met there? And so I think for a lot of people that causes confusion and sometimes causes people to then simply say, I give up, and then they don't, fall, they don't end up getting the vaccine. You know, Buddy, I mentioned on the show yesterday, and I think it's worth repeating to, to get your thoughts on this today, um, that there are some simple steps that um, my example is DeKalb County has taken to expand uh, the ability of people to get vaccinated. When, when, when DeKalb County uh, DPH first began offering vaccines, they had two locations, one down at, near Stonecrest, the other at the Brand Smart parking lot up at 285, uh, uh, just inside the perimeter, a site that could only be reached by car. And in fact, the entire site was a mobile site for people in their cars. And then DeKalb, did something that seemed so simple but so meaningful, they moved the location to a MARTA station nearby where you could get the vaccine without having to have access to a car. Simple steps that have a transformational impact. Absolutely. We've got to use our common sense and our practical knowledge when it comes to matters like this. Now, also, the fact that we've had trouble getting the vaccinations in the arms has to do with problems with our overall health care delivery system in the state. For example, if you're in Cobb County and you go to Wellstar, no problem whatsoever. Uh, North side the same way. But the further you get out from a health care system, then the more difficult it becomes. And the people that re really need to be reached are the ones that uh, are the most vulnerable. Um, so we're going to watch how this rollout uh, moves forward. Buddy, as long as in the, the ball is in your court, to what extent politically? I mean, we know this is a public health issue. We understand that the first and most important priority here is to allow Georgians to get vaccinated so they're protected. But of course there's a political aspect to all of this. To what extent, Buddy, is people's vaccination uh, ability to get vaccinated for us to all start returning to normal life. What kind of role is it going to play in the 2022 election a year from a year plus from now? Oh, I think it's very important. And I think you see President Biden and also, of course, Governor Kemp, both trying to make every effort to show that they're on top of it. Yesterday, as a matter of fact, as you know, the governor had a press conference at the Capitol and for the sole purpose of widening the reach of the uh, vaccination and letting us know that uh, he was on top of it. Uh, you see, uh, whenever the governor uh, gives a statement like that uh, and a press conference about something 
like vaccination, you know that it's got to be important because normally this is not the role of the governor. This is the Department of Public Health, and it wouldn't get this kind of attention. But absolutely it's a factor, and how it comes out is going to have a major impact on the 2022 uh, elections, in my opinion. Amy, weigh in on that. No, I think that's a really great way to put it. I mean, this is something that has touched literally everybody, right? There's a lot of public policy issues where many times we struggle to be able to explain to people how it might affect them and where it's going to play in. This is one where there's no one that's not been affected by this and is trying to get on it. And I think that uh, Buddy is exactly right, right? The governor is, he said, right, I'm the vaccine governor. He's trying to stay on top of that. Um, and he's also trying to forestall, right, the criticisms that have come up because, unfortunately, right, on the CDC's list, we are one of the worst states, unfortunately, uh, for getting people vaccinated. And so I think he's very much trying to show that it's not that the state isn't trying to get this done, but they're running into hurdles. Now, where those hurdles are and what's causing them is a whole other story, but it's a huge issue. Uh, Bill, I think that what, what we're seeing is the emergence of, you know, science finally winning out. I mean, we've, you know, in, in human society since medieval times, right, there's been a battle against uh, uh, science uh, at times. And, you know, the, 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 the politicization, polit, whatever, turning the virus into a political issue uh, became um, just a real dead end. For some people politically, because there's just reality about what a virus does, how you battle it, what public health experts know versus what people want to believe. And I just think that we're starting to see politicians emerge from that, and realize it's really a dead end not to dedicate themselves to proving to their voters that they will do all they can to keep people healthy and safe. It, it's, it's a winning issue. Why wouldn't it be? Well, it. Everything you just said makes complete sense, uh, I think, Kevin. But, buddy, um, look, uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have now said they're opening their states completely. There are going to be no more restrictions, no masks. People can move freely about in business, uh, in personal interactions. I think in um, Texas, they're starting, I think, the baseball season down there. They're going to allow 100 uh, uh, percent seating in the baseball stadiums down there. Um, and yet here, in, it, 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 at the same time, Governor Kemp has been pretty strong in saying it's not time to take our foot off the pedal. He, another conservative Republican governor who has not followed in the footsteps of DeSantis and Abbott, um, and I think the jury is out. It's a public safety help uh, measure, but I think the jury's out on how voters are going to respond, uh, especially the most conservative voters in his state. And we've got to see what happens in Texas and in Florida once these have been opened. What if uh, it turns out that we have another reemergence of the pandemic there in those two states? And I think that the governor's approach by being cautious and exactly trying to follow the science here is, is the right one. Uh, that remains to be seen, of course, about what happens in Florida and Texas. But two of the most populous states in the country, the second and third most populous states in the, in the country, going out on a limb like that, I think uh, borders on being reckless. Well, we're going to watch to see how the vaccine rollout uh, works here in the weeks ahead and continue to talk about it on the show. I do want to turn now to a subject that 
uh, Buddy Darden already mentioned, and that's the passage yesterday afternoon by the House, final passage of the Joe Biden $1.9 billion a trillion dollar uh, bailout, um, and and I want to I want to do it in this context, if I may, Kevin. The um, one of the things about this package that people may not have kind of uh, seen is that it is probably the largest expansion of the social uh, safety net uh, in modern history. It's an astonishingly broad bill. Republicans are criticizing it because, in fact, it does have a lot of money for things that are not specifically related to uh, coronavirus relief. And Democrats are celebrating the fact that, in fact, it does uh, suddenly have much broader implications. For instance, there is um, there are indications that this measure could lower the poverty rate in the United States by the year's end by one third. And, and Kevin, I, I don't mean, I want to just set this up a little further. On Sunday, the New York Times wrote a big piece about this, about the benefits for children and families. And they highlighted a Georgia woman. And I just want to read a couple of uh, paragraphs from that story, because I think it tells us a lot about the situation that people find themselves in and what this bill, one of the things this bill will do. Here's the lead. A year ago, Anique Hope, a single mother in suburban Atlanta, was working as a letter carrier, running a side business, catering picnics, and settling into a rent-to-own home in Stone Mountain, Georgia, where she thought her boys would flourish in class and excel on the football field. Then the pandemic closed the schools, the boys' grades collapsed with distance learning, and she quit work to stay home in hopes of breaking their fall. Expecting unemployment aid that never came, she lost her utilities, ran short of food, and was recovering from an immobilizing bout of COVID when a knock brought marshals with eviction papers. Depending on when the snapshot is dated, Ms. Hoop might appear as a striving emblem of upward mobility or a mother on the verge of hopelessness. But in either guise, she's among the people Democrats seek to help with a mold-breaking plan, on the, which is now passed, to provide most parents a monthly check of up to $300. That's just the beginning of that story, Kevin. That is a story about the relief that this bill will bring to many, many families like hers. Yeah, and it, it seems clear, and the Democrats have suddenly, I don't know about suddenly, but now have been, been pretty open about they use the passage of the bill as an opportunity to push forward uh, longstanding priorities that many of them have had. So it's really a question, and I'm interested to see what uh, Bunny and Amy think about this. It, to me, it's a strategy that, that where they want to show people who could be their voters and show others that these ideas that they have can work. Meanwhile, the Republicans are in the position of talking now about you know, concerns about the debt and, and uh, entitlements and where this might lead. But to me, the, it's a pretty bold step by the Democrats, and it's just a question of whether it will work as a strategy. Amy? It is. Yes, it's a very bold step. It's one that uh, we've been needing to take, in my opinion, for a long time, because the people who need the help the most haven't been getting it, and that's the working poor in this in this country who are barely getting by from paycheck to paycheck. And then, of course, the pandemic had the effect of just uh, wiping so many of them out. 
fortunately, so many of our friends have done all right and uh, haven't had the full impact of this. But there are a lot of people in this state and in this country uh, very much like the woman who was mentioned in the New York Times article. I read it, too, and I was very moved by it. But those are the people who need the help, and those are the people who will get it under, under this bill. And incidentally, sure, it's very expensive, but at the same time, uh, the money in this bill uh, pretty much uh, reflects the same amount of tax breaks that were given to corporations during Trump's tax bill. So it's all a matter of whose uh, ox is being gored. But in this case, I think it's time for regular people, needy people, to get some help from the government that they uh, support. Amy, uh, I want to bring you into this conversation. I want to add that um, this this measure, which the uh, president will sign by week's end, will actually increase by up to 80% per child in a family uh, the maximum benefits that families will get, which is why it is going to make such a big dent, presumably, on, um, on uh, poverty. But, but Amy... Do Republicans make a point here when they say, look, we have supported in the past COVID relief. We understand the need for that. But now this bill packs in so much that is beyond just relief that it's simply a a, a bridge too far. Um, I think politically you can make a multitude of arguments, right? And sort of the other question is going to be sort of how does the public perceive it as opposed to the discussions that are going on in Washington. And there, um, the results are sort of overwhelming, right? Uh, Pew Research has out numbers that show that over 70 percent of Americans support it, including a half, um, depending on which poll you're looking at, somewhere between a half to over a half, even of Republican voters support uh, the bill overall. And then that number sort of really goes up when you talk about specific portions of it. Um, in many ways, right, sort of this discussion of the debt, right, $1.9 trillion sounds, I mean, obviously, big and scary and it's a huge number. But then when you say to people, oh, it's going to help you pay your mortgage, it's going to prevent you from being evicted, it's going to help you with childcare costs that for many people have gotten um, really sort of out of control, right? We, we have real issues in the United States, and a lot of that has come out of the pandemic, where they're now saying that we thought there might be sort of this pandemic baby boom, and instead it's a pandemic baby bust, with a lot of people saying the reason is that they simply can't afford it, right? Child care is incredibly expensive. All of the other things that go, people are having issues, um, right, the housing market, all of this. And so I think the sort of other side of it is that for most people at home, this bill is going to aid them, right? If you're in that very top percent, you're not going to see much out of this. But the truth is, is you probably came through this just fine, right? For most people, and I think a lot of people also kind of forget and why this is playing so much that we had a lot of attention at the very beginning, right? So a year ago, there was a lot of attention on all the people who had to take pay cuts, all the people who lost their jobs, all the people who didn't get uh, things that are built into their payment plans. And I think what we've forgotten is that hasn't actually come necessarily come back. There are still a lot of people who haven't gotten their jobs back, who ha- their salaries are still not complete. 
they are still not getting right those other parts of it as the companies are struggling. And so again, for them, what they're seeing is I'm getting a check and this is amazing because now I can pay my bills. And did you notice, Kevin, Bill, that uh, Kevin? Let me let me get excuse me. Go go ahead, buddy. Well, go Bonnie, I'm going to come at you with a question. Ahead. So um, I'm no expert on the bill, right? But this is a one-time shot in in some cases, correct? So from a legislative and political strategy point of view, um, what next? I mean, uh, what are the Democrats counting on people getting used to this and wanting more, or is it going to be a chance for Republicans to say, well? Um, see, this didn't really help because it's gone away, or how will this work? Buddy? Well, I think the next step will be infrastructure because we need to do something uh, about um, our uh, failing infrastructure in this country, and this is a perfect opportunity to use private and public partnerships together, and this can be done in a very, very effective way without adding to without adding to the uh, budget deficit. But this will be, at least from social legislation, this was a once-in-a-almost-lifetime bill and uh, because we have a once-in-a-lifetime situation. And in all fairness uh, to the president, and I'm not here to carry his water today, but he promised to do this. He said he was going to do this, and he did it. And unlike uh, President Trump, who insisted that his name be on every check that went out, uh, President Biden has taken the opposite approach because uh, to keep this going in a hurry, he didn't add his name uh, to the checks like uh, the former president did. So this is a once-in-a-lifetime event, uh, the pandemic is, and this is a once-in-a-lifetime bill that's being passed. I got to get to a break, but I think Kevin Riley, you point us in a really interesting direction. That's what I w- w- that I would love to take up when we come back. Which is um, is is there a sudden resurgence of uh, of of public support for broad federal involvement in um, in helping us live day to day? We'll talk about that after we take these this break. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Quick program note about tomorrow's show before we return to the panel. Um, We're going to change pace a little bit tomorrow, and I'm going to have a conversation for the entire show with Tony Award-winning director Kenny Leon. Kenny Leon, who for many, many years was the artistic director of the Alliance Theater here in Atlanta, um, went on to Broadway, now has a new movie that will be uh, premiering on the Lifetime Network over Easter weekend about the life of Mahalia Jackson, probably the greatest, greatest gospel singer uh, in American history. We're going to talk about Mahalia Jackson's life and the hardship she experienced, also her role in the Eye of a Dream speech that uh, Martin Luther King gave in the March on Washington, Uh, Kenny Leon also was a director on a project for Netflix called Amend with Will Smith, which is a story of how the 14th Amendment 
uh, played a role in over many, many decades uh, being uh, the backbone of how African-Americans worked for equality in this country. Uh, so Kenny Leon will be on uh, with us tomorrow to talk about that and a lot more. All right. Uh, Kevin Riley, AJC editor, Professor Amy Steigerwald, Georgia State University, Buddy Darden, all with us today. So, Kevin, we all know that famously, many years ago, Ronald Reagan said, government isn't the answer to your problems, government is the problem. And the Reagan era really did usher in a period in which conservatives argued pretty successfully that the federal government had to step back from taking care of Americans, from the kind of nanny state that uh, many conservatives have objected to. And, and you asked the question of Buddy Darden that I think is pertinent right now. Um, it, when the 2022 elections come around, will we see that voters have now moved away from the Reagan politics of the past and are going to reward the, the uh, members of Congress, particularly, who supported this bill? Um, or are they or Republicans going to take advantage of it and say federal overreach is a problem? And Kevin, we don't know the answer to that, but it's going to be a fascinating process to watch unfold. Yeah, it sure is. Um, and I think that, you know, some of those things you mentioned, like the Reagan line or the, you know, the old joke um, from the government, I'm here to help, you know, that kind of thing, um, have become so entrenched in America, America's uh, consciousness that, you know, we really do sometimes, uh, I think, just believe government can't do anything right. But the pandemic, I think, showed uh, that there's a, there are roles where the government, the federal government in particular, has an important uh, uh, job to do. And it really does become a question of, will people believe, hey, there, there are things that uh, the government should do, can do, and will do that make my life better? Um, or will uh, the you know, Reagan uh, philosophy reemerge as, I mean, inevitably with this bill, right, there'll be misspent money, there'll be corruption, there'll be people who end up with money who shouldn't get it. Uh, there'll be uh, government uh, snafus, but I, it really does uh, create this stark line between the two political philosophies that we are uh, continuing to sort of battle over. Amy, I don't think the Democrats who voted for this bill see this as one shot only. I think many of the progressives on the Hill believe this is the beginning of essentially a, a broader entitlement program for people in this country who need help and that they will their their philosophy is now that it's in place republicans are not going to be able to pull it back from people who are receiving some of these um, exceptional new benefits but it does amy raise this question about are we returning to a time when we saw the federal government as taking care of people in a way that we've kind of moved away from since ronald reagan no, I think that's really very true. And I think in some level, right, it is in part a reflection of seeing um, what other countries have done. And also, particularly during um, the past year, the fact that, for example, there has not been sort of the, the average person in a lot of countries, which we consider our peers, have not been harmed as much personally because their federal governments have kicked in more aid. And so I think there is on that, I think there is more people, right? We've started to see this change, right? And it's, 
It's not just in the Democratic Party also, right? Also in the Republican Party uh, pushes more for paid family leave, right? That recognition that uh, it takes time. It also takes money, right? Aiding with child care, right? These things that we can sort of come together on. Um, well, on the one hand, right, Senator Josh Hawley was one of obviously the big people who was objecting to the election results and pushing uh, about election fraud. He is also one of the leaders in the Senate on the idea that the minimum wage should be raised to $15, right, and that recognition that it's not keeping up with um, how much people need to be paid, because that's the other side of it, right, is that there's been a this sort of big push of sort of welfare to work, but if the jobs then, in fact, don't pay you a wage that allows you to pay your bills, then we've got a problem. And so I think some of it is we have really seen a shift, and it's actually in both parties. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see sort of how that plays out. Well, to follow Buddy? up on what Amy says, uh, these are extraordinary times. And this has been brought about, this situation, by the pandemic in which we have uh, – problems with unemployment, with poverty, things that are occurring in this country which should not occur in the richest country in the world. And not since the Great Depression have we uh, witnessed uh, the, a number of Americans hurting and suffering uh, in our own country. And many of us feel like that we need to do something to help those folks. Now, people like me, we've already gotten ours. We've got Medicare. We've had the benefit of a good economy, but at the same time, uh, we owe something to these younger generations to help them out of the problems that they are into. And as Amy said, it's embarrassing almost that our country has been more devastated economically than most European countries and many Asian countries as well. So um, this is, uh, again, a once in a lifetime or generational at least experience. And, and, uh, I see no problem with this with this uh, country stepping up. Now, if it turns out that we have to step back uh, in the future, so be it. But uh, this is a moment in time which this country, America, needs to respond to the needs of its people. You know, buddy, I mentioned, uh, uh, of course, the the Reagan era uh, and his conservative approach to the federal government. But but I think it, it really it's very important to point out that while you remember the United States House. It was Democratic President Bill Clinton who led the charge on, ref on welfare reform. In fact, as a candidate, as you know, for president in 1992, he took a stand diametrically opposed to the liberal members of the party and said, we have got to look at welfare, reform it. There's too much money going out in this. And he was able to pass that. So we, we can't blame this on Republicans. It was Democrat Bill Clinton who kind of helped scale back federal intervention in the lives of, of, of supporting Americans. That's a good point, Bill. But what he also did, by one vote, he passed his economic plan, which led to the largest uh, prosperity this country has had experienced uh, since World War II. And that includes, of course, not only uh, spending less money, but included raising raising revenues as, as well. So uh, I, I remember the fact that uh, it passed 218 to 217 or something like that uh, in the, in the uh, House of Representatives, and, and some of us uh, might have paid a little price for it. But at the same time, uh, 
have tough decisions that have to be made, and and uh, nobody ever said it would be easy. Okay, um, I want to move on. Uh, I do think this is a subject we'll come back to a lot because it's going to play a big role in the 2022 election cycle here in Georgia and across the country. But uh, let's talk about a current issue. Kevin Riley, there is no way we can do a political rewind these days without at least talking for a couple of minutes about the election bills that are uh, continuing to be probably the most controversial measures that the Georgia legislature has dealt with since it's the deal dealt with the bill that virtually outlaws abortion in the state of Georgia. And I want to go at it from this context. We've now seen a casualty in terms of the, the Republicans who have enthusiastically supported this bill. And here's what I mean by that. The Hancock County Board of Commissioners voted yesterday to ask Representative Barry Fleming, who has been one of the leaders in the efforts to change how Georgians vote in the next election cycle, to resign as the county attorney after pressure from citizens who are opposed to his work on proposed voting law changes. Um, And Kevin, I add to that, we know that four members of the state Senate, when this big omnibus election bill uh, was voted on uh, in, in the other day on crossover day, absented themselves from the chamber because they're all in swing districts and were nervous about what voting on this bill either way could do to them in re-election. So co- these votes have consequences. Um, proposals have consequences. Well, they sure do, Bill. And, uh, you know, I just keep coming back to, to one thing as I watch all of this go on, which is uh, I don't see how this is a good strategy over the long haul for one party to be in the position of somehow making it likely that fewer people will vote. But even once all the smoke clears, uh, and to me, these this constantly coming back to, um, well, we want elections to be secure. Well, these are the same people who were elected <laughs> in the election about which they have all these concerns about whether it was secure. So, um, uh, you know, create a problem that isn't there, offer a solution to a problem that isn't there. Um, I, I just think eventually there will be a price to be paid for that because it's I don't see how it's not a flawed strategy to be on the side of keeping some people from voting or making it harder for people to vote. Buddy, you know Hancock County better than anybody. You grew up there. It has one of the highest proportions of black voters in the country and has been the center of controversy in the past. Uh, In 2015, a fifth of the voters in Hancock County, all of whom were black, had their voter registrations challenged. So voting issues in Hancock County have always been a big deal. Yes, it has. And as you stated, I uh, grew up in Hancock County, was educated uh, there, owned property uh, there up until about two months ago, and even contracted the the virus there back in October. So uh, I feel very special about Hancock County, and I could go on and on about my connections there. But let me let me just say that what Hancock County has achieved in the last few years after being the leader and having the most African-American uh, elected officials there is that we have finally achieved a biracial, delicate balance there in the county uh, in which we are working together. 
and probably more than any other county has come further toward back toward a understanding between black and white citizens, even though we were much smaller and the African-American percentage was something like 80 percent. Uh, we have an elected county commission chair who's white, and uh, we've had all kinds of cooperation from from the state and done great things down there. And then all of a sudden, our county attorney, Bear Fleming, who I like personally from over in over in Columbia County, becomes a ringleader and just thrust a dagger into the heart of uh, one of his clients. So, of course, of course they uh, saw, saw fit to remove him, and they should have. All right, um, Buddy Darden, you get the last word in this segment. we got to take a break. When we come back, um, President Trump has weighed in on who he thinks would make a terrific opponent against Senator Raphael Warnock in next year's U.S. Senate election here. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Amy Steigerwald, you and I have something uh, in common that we love talking about. We're both fans of what Europeans call football. We like soccer. We're not... I mean, I mean, you like real football, too, I guess. But I, I, So I will just throw this out to you. One of the most famous football players in, uh, in the history of the college game, uh, Herschel mm-hmm. Walker, is now being urged by his friend, Donald Trump, to run against Raphael Warnock. Trump put out a statement. He would have put it on Twitter at one point if he hadn't been banned. <laughs> Wouldn't it be fantastic if the legendary Herschel Walker ran for the United States Senate in Georgia? He would be unstoppable, just like he was when he played for the Georgia Bulldogs and in the NFL. He's a great person. Run, Herschel, run. I just can't imagine a matchup between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker wouldn't command enormous attention beyond the attention that race is going to get anyway. Oh, it most decidedly would, as you would be tapping into really all of the areas of attention, because, of course, you would have two people that have sky-high name recognition, though, from very different um, places, um, including, right, somebody who obviously had an exceptional football career. Um, it also is a really fascinating statement coming from the president because there's a number of very other high-profile people who are considering uh, a run against Senator Warnock, who Trump, for example, has endorsed in the past, such as uh, Representative Doug Collins, who he has also encouraged to run to primary uh, Governor Kemp, uh, Former Senator uh, Kelly Leffler, who, of course, uh, ran previously and keeps considering uh, doing a rematch as well. And so I think that there's a sort of a lot of issues that are going here of how that's going to affect it. Um, There's also a minor problem that Herschel Walker doesn't actually live in Georgia. So he would also have to uh, move and establish residency here in Georgia. He currently lives in Texas, um, and he's never run for office, which may or may not be helpful. But I think it is, again, also an interesting show of the ways in which the former president is trying to sort of really play, you know, trying to show that he is still directing the party, right? That it is not, in fact, the Republican Party, but the Trump Party, and that he's the one who gets to sort of handpick primary opponents and things like that. 
Yeah, Kevin, uh, I think Amy makes an important point here. First of all, we don't know that, that uh, uh, Hershey Walker, it's been rumored for a while he wants to run. We don't know that he absolutely will. In many ways, it's a sideshow, but the point she makes is that there are some other people like Kelly Leffer, like Doug Collins, who very well might line up for that job. So one way or the other, that's going to be one of the highest priorities of uh, national Republicans is trying to beat Raphael Warnock next year. Yeah, there's no one more famous than Herschel Walker, Bill. A quick story. Uh, when I got to go visit the Georgia Historical Society archives and talk to their folks there, one of their prized possessions are the Vince Dooley papers, the Georgia coach. And one of the things they showed me was the calendar coach Dooley kept, including pointing to the date when he went to recruit Herschel Walker, which, of course, changed the course of Georgia football. So that's really a problem. I mean, uh, if the Republican, uh, you know, people who kind of are looking at this for control of the Senate and, and where the party needs to go. If Herschel Walker would decide to run, um, he, I mean, could you, is anyone a more famous Georgian? I mean, even Bill Nye is not as famous as Herschel Walker. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, buddy, it's interesting that Kevin Riley uh, mentions Vince Dooley at the same time we're talking about a Herschel Walker run for Senate, because you remember quite well, buddy, that Democrats were, urging with all the passion they could muster Vince Dooley to run for the United States Senate back in the mid-1980s. I think it was probably 1986 when White Fowler ended up being the Democratic candidate, and Dooley, of course, decided against uh, doing just that, buddy. That's correct. I remember, remember it well, and but also as a sequel to that, his very uh, charismatic spouse, Barbara, ran for the state legislature, uh, several years later as a Republican and got clobbered by uh, the late uh, Dean Louise McBee, uh, who uh, just died uh, about a week ago and and uh, was, was famous in her own right. But going back to Herschel, I'm thrilled. I was there in Tennessee when he made, made that uh, first breakout performance, and I've been a big fan of Her Her Herschel Walker for many years as a football player as a football player, but uh, I'm not sure that this is the right thing for Herschel to do for himself or for the state. But I, I will say this briefly about uh, Donald Trump, is that he's managed to accomplish something that no Democratic politician in Georgia has ever done before, and that is totally unite the Democratic Party. And so uh, I think it'll end up being, frankly, not Warnock versus versus. Um, Herschel Walker, it'll be, it'll be Donald Trump uh, versus Warnock. So we'll just see how uh, it goes. Right. I want to, uh, with the last uh, minutes that we have, and we have, we have a good, good amount of time to discuss this, um, I talked about the fact that March 11th is an important day because it was the day the NBA told all of us a year ago, it's time to shut down. And, and just briefly, I'd love to ask each of you, if what perhaps, this is something my wife always asks people, how has this year changed you? What have you learned about yourself in the course of a year of dealing with the pandemic, lockdown, uh, not being able to be with friends? Um, Amy, has the year changed how you see the world, how you see yourself? Oh, decidedly. Um I think it has emphasized to me how important family and also 
those friends that in fact are our sort of made found families are and the ways in which we can stay in touch. Um, I'm sort of embarrassed to admit that it took the lockdown to recognize that I have colleagues who I consider good friends who are at other universities that, wait, we could have weekly Zoom meetings and why haven't we been doing this? Um, I think it's also sort of emphasized, you know, what are the things that are important and, and what we need to be happy. Uh, we're certainly not doing as much, right, sort of outside things, but we've sort of found new ones. Um, we personally have taken up hiking, and can I just say that there are tons of hiking trails, even in, like, hidden in metro Atlanta, which are delightful to go and find, but I think it's been, there, there's been a lot of ways in which it's been a good year for self-reflection, and I, I'm glad of the things that I've learned to remember what's of value. Buddy? I want to totally adopt everything that Amy has said because it rings so true with with me and, and my family. But one additional thing, it has taught me to really appreciate the blessings that uh, we've ha had and the things that uh, we we have been able to to achieve and to and to also be so thankful that uh, for our families and makes us appreciate what we have and and um, to be content in who we are in life. Kevin Riley, we give you the last word on uh, this. This has been a huge year for you as editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, probably never busier at any other time in your career. But what has it meant to you personally? You know, Bill, I think the thing that the pandemic showed all of us is that we all have uh, vulnerabilities, you know, and as people, whether we, there are people we work with, people we interact with, or our close family, that we have to understand that we all have a place that makes us vulnerable or things that make us vulnerable. And we need to help each other through that and appreciate that about each other. And I think the pandemic, by creating a common vulnerability for all of us, really cleared that up for me and makes me think about my relationships very differently. Kevin Riley, I'm going to let our listeners in on something that you do. You write to your staff virtually every day, sharing with them what's going on in uh, your life. You invite a member of the staff to weigh in on their lives, just as a way you've learned how important it is during these times to stay connected with the people who work with you and the people you care about, right? Absolutely. And um, it's... Uh... It's been a challenging time for uh, everybody in, in all of their work and all their personal relationships. Uh, and um, I think you're hearing that from all of us, right? That we've come to appreciate each other much more. Kevin Riley, thank you for uh, closing us out with those words. Amy Steiger, Walt, Buddy Darden, uh, a really terrific conversation today. Thank you for being part of the show. Jesse Neiswanger, Amelia Brock, Sam Burmistaz, thank you as always for the work you do to make this show the success that we hope we can be on most days that we're on the air. That's it for us for today. Again, Tony Award-winning Broadway director and movie director and so much more, Kenny Leon, will be here as a special guest on Political Rewind tomorrow. I am really looking forward to that show, so I hope you'll join us. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and now figure out when you, if you haven't been vaccinated, can get your vaccine. See you all tomorrow.